the reading from the prophet is from the prophet Isaiah, reading from chapter 58, but I'm not going to trouble you with the King James English, because that's a little difficult to get your head around. So I'm also going to do what actually was the case when the Hebrew was read in the synagogue, because few people actually spoke the Hebrew, and whoever was doing the reading had to give an off-the-cuff translation into Aramaic or Greek as they read. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light will shine in the darkness, and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in, in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins will be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairers of the breach, the restorers of streets. To live in. Then Jesus sat down to preach. And that's always intrigued me. I wondered what it would be like to sit down and preach. Don't pay a crown for sitting right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's see what I was going to say. I said before, welcome in your imagination to a first century synagogue. As I said to the children, there's not a great deal of difference between the purposes of a synagogue and those of, of a church. In fact, the early Scots Protestants seem to have adopted some interesting aspects worship in the synagogue. They choose to sing only psalms and occasionally scriptural paraphrases and they sing a cappella until 1862 when horror of horrors the minister of Greatfriars Church in Edinburgh decided to introduce the deal kiss the whistle a harmonium to accompany the choir. As one commentator has said, the essentials of the faith were not involved. All that was attempted was the application of modern conceptions of refinement and taste to the bald austerities of worship, which the Scottish people through long years had come to re 
God as in themselves a divine appointment. Well, that's how we got the old architecture. But relatively recently, and of course the Scots reworked the Psalms in order to sing them. And they also took from the synagogue the rule of elders. Originally in Israel, they were the male heads of families with enough wealth to enable them to spend much leisure time discussing the scriptures that they already knew by heart. To get an idea of how important that was to them, I've included a short clip from Fiddler on the Roof, where Celia, the milkmaid, wishes she was a rocking chair. longing of every Jewish man to have the opportunity to sit and discuss the scriptures. That's not quite what we get to do much in church. Anyway, when Jesus came that day to the synagogue in Nazareth, where he'd gone every Sabbath since he was a child, and when he went to Nazareth, he knew who would be sitting in the front row elders, wealthy men who had known Joseph. When I joined the session of St. Andrew's Waipukarau in my early 20s, I counted it a great privilege to join those 18 earnest and venerable men, about eight of whom would join the minister to sit around the communion table for that communion service every quarter. They knew my father businessman in the town. By and large, they were blasphemous in their comments on the occasions when the minister invited me to preach. Not so the elders in Nazareth. They gave Jesus a hard time. Their Sabbath service would have begun as we did this morning with the reciting of the Shema. And that then there would have followed the singing of the psalms and the prayer. This would all have been probably led by the president of the synagogue. <laughs> Here's the paraphrasing tactic. Anyway, then the man who had been hired as caretaker come assistant would take the scroll of the Torah from the cabinet and read the section of the law set down for the day. And it's rather interesting that today the, um, the, set, the reading, I just lost my place. 
a little bit. We'll go back to our slides. The man hired as caretaker, come assistant, would take the scroll of the Torah from the cabinet and read the section of the law set down for the day. He would ta then take another scroll containing the prophet or the writing. They only had those three categories. There was the law, the first five books, and then there were the prophets, and then there was everything else, the writing. And he would take uh, one of those scrolls and invite a suitable person, say a scribe or a Pharisee, or especially a visiting rabbi, to choose a reading and then explain what it meant. The scrolls were written in Hebrew, in capital letters, without vowels, and from right to left, backward, backwards to us. And the interesting thing is that the, at that time, early in the first century, very few ordinary people still spoke Hebrew. Probably they spoke Aramaic. So Greek was the common language. And many years earlier, all of the scrolls in the Hebrew scriptures had been translated into Greek. And that version was called the Septuagint. You may have heard of that. It just is a Latin word meaning 70, because there was tradition that 72 rabbis developed the Septuagint, two from each of the tribes of Israel. Um, that's how it came by its name. Be that as it may, the preacher reading from a Hebrew scroll usually had to give, as I said, a running translation into Aramaic or Greek as he read. Then he would sit down preach and to explain the meaning of what he'd just read. Now as I said last time I was here, I think that, that the um, preaching was followed by a time of discussion where particularly the elders, well versed in the various possible interpretations of the text, would share their views on what had been said. So it was an interchange, not just one person. That, I think, is the reason why the preacher sat down. They stood to read because they needed a lectern on which to rest the scrolls. They were not small things. But initiating a discussion doesn't really work too well when you're standing six feet above tongue distance. Today, Dennis read the passage from the Torah that was set down in the common lectionary for today. So it was actually quite easy for us to simulate the practice of the first century synagogue. And with the same intention, I chose to read from the 58th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. At first glance, it seems to be about fasting, which is a spiritual discipline that doesn't feature very highly in contemporary church life. Yet it seems to have been deeply embedded in the practice of the ancient Hebrews, as with many other pagan religions. However, the therapeutic use of fasting is attributed to the Greek physician Hippocrates, who, as you probably know, was regarded as the father of medicine. He prescribed it for certain forms of illness in the 5th century BCE. And from 
medical purposes, but has found it supported right up to the 21st century. Although considerable research has been done into the medical effects of fasting, generally the question of whether or not fasting is beneficial to the health is still remains unclear. But the religious use of fasting is widespread among many of the ancient peoples, thought to be a way of appeasing an angry god or preparing themselves just to approach God. For the Hebrews, fasting was associated with penitence and was particularly connected with the Day of Atonement as well as some of the other annual festivals. It wasn't something that they got into every week, but it was on those important festivals when fasting was considered appropriate. And of course, Christ for Christians, Lent, which begins in a couple of weeks with Ash Wednesday, is the 40-day period of reflection and penitence and preparation for Easter, and has always been observed with various forms of fasting. It appears that in Isaiah's time, people were quite diligent about fasting, but they complained that God didn't seem to notice. Why do we fast, they said, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Through the prophets, God responds with a scathing critique of their behavior, asking if they really think that bowing down in sackcloth and ashes is acceptable behavior when they persist in quarreling and fighting and oppressing their workers. Through the prophet, God challenges them to back up their religious practices with lives and actions and relationships that show that they are actually living their faith. Is not this the fast I choose, God says? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own words are not unfamiliar to us. The theme of living out the values of our faith is so much part of the bread and butter of Christian teaching that it would be easy to respond, respond by saying, oh yeah, we know all that, without addressing the question of what is the appropriate Christian response to the issue of our values. the question, what are the issues about our report? Anyone want to offer a comment? Sunday Christian. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
if there's anybody in the congregation who wants to make a comment, please, please feel free.